Welcome to today's episode of the MedTech Business Academy. The MedTech experts are joined by two members of the Curran team, Bob Rogers and Abby Norfleet. They'll be reviewing their successes and challenges in bringing a new product to market, as well as the approach that's helped them find success. Let's go ahead and listen in. Good day, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the MedTech Business Academy podcast sponsored by the MedTech experts. Very excited to have everybody on. Very, very excited about today's show and the very special guest that we have on for today uh, as it follows a string of, of podcasts that we've done recently that lead up to this moment. I think it's going to be really great insight overall um, for, for our listening audience as to how to build a successful platform and gain success in today's tumultuous market. So with that, before I uh, introduce our guest, let me just introduce uh, our esteemed panelists. Uh, today I have myself, Skinner Darity, uh, Barbara Strain on with myself, and for one of the first times, behind the cloak coming from behind the veil is our longtime producer, Colleen Patterson, uh, who is stepping behind the veil now, coming to the forefront, and very excited to have her on. Um, and I think she's probably going to be the most insightful one of all of us. Uh, so excited. With that, I want to get right into our guest, our esteemed guest, um, and introduce them. So first, let me start with uh, Mr. Bob Rogers. Uh, Bob Rogers currently serves as CEO and chairman of the board for Current Inc. Bob has been in the medical device industry for over 40 years. His industry experience has provided him with a foundation from which he has developed several innovative devices. Specifically, Mr. Rogers is recognized as one of the founders of the lure-activated valve industry, estimated to exceed annual sales of $1.2 billion worldwide, and the disinfection cap market, estimated to exceed $1 billion annually. As the CEO of Ivera Medical from, 20, from 2007 to 2015, Rogers led the creation of an entirely new market space with the development of the Kuros disinfecting cap product line, an innovation that was acquired by 3M Corporation in early 2015. His patented ideas have founded several companies, including Ivera Medical, Ivera Medical, Bridge Medical, and Mission Medical Devices. He has held executive management positions with PPG, the Sensors Division, Bridge Medical, CardioNet, and Ivera Medical. Rogers is a holder of 31 patents with several more pending, and he is also an expert in making anybody feel inadequate because I don't know anybody else that has such a bio like that. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Skander. Absolutely. So also have Abby Norfleet. Abby Norfleet has been in the healthcare industry for over 15 years, starting as a critical care nurse at a renowned level one trauma facility. During her practice, Abby found a passion for improving patient care and safety, driving outcomes, and reducing healthcare expenses at and away from the bedside. Abby joined Bob at Ivera Medical in 2012 as a member of the clinical integration team, helping to build a unique approach to achieving long-term sustainability of clinical outcomes. Upon the acquisition of Ivera by 3M Corporation, Abby led the clinical specialist team in the medical sciences division, supporting the vascular access, infection prevention, and wound care portfolios. While with 3M, Abby participated in new product launches and built customer-facing programs to drive growth and sustainability. Abby rejoined Bob and other Ivera executive team members when Kern came to market in 2017, establishing their clinical outcomes team and process. She now serves as EVP of sales for the Southeast region, 
And so glad that your get band came back together and so glad to have you back on, Abby. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So before uh, before we get into kind of the Q&A, would, uh, would one of you please just take a moment to give us a little bit of a background as to uh, Curran and your current organization and what you're currently doing for the listening audience, if you would, please, so they have some perspective? Sure, I'll take that. Um, so Curran uh, started about, I came up with the idea about three months after the sale of Ivera to 3M. Um, I guess it's fair to say I, I am a serial entrepreneur. I, I've started now eight different companies. Um, I have two that are ongoing now. Karen's one of them. And I just was bored after the sale of Ivera. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was playing my guitar, playing golf, and I wasn't good at any of it. <laughs> I should add video games, so I'm not good at that. You know, if I get stuck, I get my son to come get me out of the trouble. <laughs> um, Does he let you win? Well, with his help, I can win. <laughs> He's stuck. Okay, got um, it. So anyway, after uh, th- three months approximately after uh, the sale of Ivera, I began thinking about these market opportunities. What else could I be doing? And I actually landed on Cadi, Catheter Associated Urinary Tract Infections, which is now my eighth company. Um, at the time, I couldn't think of a good way to approach that market. Um, and we can certainly get to, into those kinds of details as we talk today. So I turned my view towards blood culture contamination and I saw it as a very costly problem. Uh, There was a large unaddressed market. Um, It was not good quality of care for patients. There's just a lot of negatives there. And so we started looking at that and I came up with an idea that I thought could solve the problem. And my kind of my forte is simplicity. Try not to change workflow. Uh, Change is hard in hospitals, but changing workflow is nearly impossible. It's just so difficult to get done. So anyway, we came up with the idea and um, we had a product in the market by May of 17. And then we started expanding. We we got some good positive initial reactions. Uh, The market seemed to be receptive to these kinds of ideas. Um, hey Bob, can I just pause you for a second? You said sure. May of 17, you had the product on the market. So what is the time frame from when you came up with the idea to when you had that product on the market? So I first showed a crude prototype I had made in my garage in August of 15. And then we were in the market in 17. Amazing. And, and yeah, there's a lot to that. Um, very small group of people at that time. We're now up to 63 Um, I would say roughly 75%, maybe 80% of my employees are customer facing. Um, I I just don't believe in um, adding a lot of overhead to the organization. So we we built a very nice business. You know, I've heard comments from people that have looked at the financials of other businesses and they'll tell me, we've never seen a business run like the way you run a business. And my my idea is really simple. I pretend it's actually my money, right? Right. Nickels, nickels are manhole covers, and I I don't like to give them up too easily. Kind of like the way hospitals operate. <laughs> I love that. I love that. A- Abby, anything you want to add to that story? No, I, I Bob always does such a good job teeing up how he got to where he did, and I feel like with each company, I mean, I've been blessed to be part of 
two of out of his eight with him so far, but understanding his history, it's always, I've heard that story a million times now. And I still like to hear it every time because it's just, I do think he has a very unique perspective and how he gets these things established and then is able to bring them to market and then ultimately build a team to support him to make it successful. Well, as an entrepreneur myself, obviously I find just great inspiration in talking to people like that, especially you, Bob, and I've known you for a while and followed your story for, for longer than that. So, uh, so to see the success uh, materialize the way it has for you is really incredible. And that's kind of why we asked you to be on today. Um, we reference this being in a string of podcast episodes, and I kind of want to talk about how we arrived at this today. We had a podcast that we recorded a few a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago, uh, with um, Dr. Lewis Perkins, who's a CNO at a large uh, hospital in the Midwest. And one of the questions that we asked him, um, and with no commercial decision behind it, no no strings attached. We just asked him openly to give us some things that were resonating for him in the market as it related to medtech products. And one of the final questions we asked him was, what was one of the most recent medtech products that you had worked with that just left the mark? And he didn't reference you by name, um, the kudos to him. Uh, but what he did reference was, obviously, this is a, a, a still maturing market segment kudos to you um, and, and helping to develop and grow this. And so it was obvious when he referenced blood culture contamination uh, that who he was referencing. Um, and he said it was blood culture contamination that left him with this mark. And what he said that really resonated with him the most was the approach that your organization had brought to him. And it was one that was very specific to his needs. Uh, he referenced that he asked for data. And A, when he asked for the data, the responsiveness with which he was presented that data was something that left a mark on him. And second, the data that was presented was specific to him, not just in the market, not just saying, hey, um, you know, uh, uh, contamination of blood cultures is this across the U.S. No, it was very much this is what we believe is happening in your facility. And then the overall process that emanated from there with the way your team approached his team and how you made the conversion easy is really what stood out for him. Um, so we wanted to talk about in the context of that, this is a success story in a time where a lot of organizations are having trouble finding success. And so we just wanted to give you an opportunity. You don't have to necessarily talk about the opportunity specific to Dr. Lewis Perkins, but more about how are you achieving success? How is it that you're able to leave a mark with a CNO? And I know that a CNO isn't your necessarily primary call point, right? Um, you're calling on other places in the hospital, but eventually you bubbled up to the highest level and left the mark with the highest level. And it's some of the success that so many people in our industry are striving for ways to achieve that. How are you guys achieving success even today? Well, so it, it kind of starts with the foundation. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier of how we approach the market, what we look for. Um, so I talk, I've talked about a large unaddressed market opportunity. Uh, I like to see in a market opportunity of at least a billion dollars because you're not going to get it all. 
you, you just have to have some space. And I do believe that right now, these diversion devices, we may have penetrated about 5% of the market. So there's still a huge opportunity out there. Um, I, I believe uh, When you say 5% of the market, sorry to interrupt again, but you're still, that's like a projection because this is an emerging market. This isn't a market that necessarily is completely mature and exists. You're basing that on projections of what the market can be when everybody realizes the challenges they're having with their current system and process. Uh, I, I think it's a little bit different than that. We, okay. we look at we look at all the blood cultures that are done in the U.S. and we think that's the opportunity. Got it. Five percent. Okay, maybe right. less. Um, the the other thing I look at and I ask my marketing folks early on, the other founders, does anyone care? Go go out there and talk to people. Does 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 this even? Uh, create any noise level within these institutions. And then what is the cost of every time this happens? Is it, are there peer reviewed articles? Are there, is there things that out there that we can say that we can build a value, a cost benefit analysis for the hospital? And if it all kind of checks out, I may then say, okay, can I make a product at this level can I charge at this and still offer the opportunity for the hospital to save a million dollars a year or more? And we collect maybe 10% of that. And that's that's how I kind of look at those businesses. The other aspect I would say is I hire the best people I can find. And not everyone wants to be part of a startup and there's a lot of risk. Most startups fail. Um, I was a sales rep once and I got I worked for some big companies and I saw how they operated, and I, I vowed to myself that if I ever got the chance to do this, I was going to do it differently and treat people with respect. Doesn't mean we have to, we'll agree on everything, but we'll have a discussion. And then once we make a decision, we're all moving in the same direction. We're all rolling in the same direction. So um, by hiring the best people, I don't think about, do I have the right person? is the wrong you know it's, it's just a bad match and i i think I, i'm going to listen to what they're telling me about what the customer is saying pay attention to that and see if that's something i can address and if i can't I, I i need to really think about it the whole early stage of the process is i'm trying to kill the project now most people most people don't understand that they they just want to hold on to it they want it to be successful i'm trying to kill it because time is the only thing I can't ever replace. And if I find out 10 years later that I'm working on a project that just never had any legs, it had a fatal flaw, why, right? So that's kind of my bias. And I think that's, it's been really helpful when you do startups. That's some really dynamic perspective on that, Bob. And I think the, specifically trying to go in with the idea of, the, you know, let's look for all the ways that this won't be successful is unique. And a few different times during what you just said, you referenced, you know, that voice of the customer experience, really having a great insight into the market. Can you share a little bit more information about how you actually go about hearing what the people have to say? Well, we actually go talk to people. Um, I, I was in, um, I, I was never a healthcare practitioner, but I sold into hospitals. I've been in the OR for open hearts. I've been in the ICUs. I've worked with laboratories. 
And I think as a good sales rep, you do listen to people and you start understanding what the, the pressure points are of what, what these people are dealing with. At the end of the day, everyone wants to deliver great healthcare, but they also got to keep the doors open. Right. So with, with that kind of as a background of experience, you start looking at these products and, and how they get put into hospitals. I've done a few myself. And if they're changing workflow, it is a pain in the rear and it's ever ongoing. Now, even what we do is a slight change. Um, they got to grab the right product, which is always challenging. There's a compliance level there. And then we have one little element where they put the needle in, they've got to see the flash. They're supposed to be doing this stuff anyway, but not, not everyone does that. So anyway, I, I kind of got off on a tangent there. Did well, I answer your question? I'm sorry. I said, you're very passionate. It comes through. So, yeah. Well, thank you, Barbara. One of the things that I'll give Bob a lot of credit for too, as well, is when we have our company meetings. So he's he's of course very big on when you're looking at once he's at the product stage and like okay, we actually have a viable market here. I've come up with what I feel like is going to be a very good solution, and it is true. He is always the first one to try to make sure try to kill it before it can ever even grow legs, um, which is just a respectable thing to find when everybody else is usually sometimes trying to actually force something to make it happen. Yeah. But one of the things that I have always found very respectful, respectful as well is aside from voice of customer to his point, he's respectful of the people that he hires and those that he knows are actually talking to the customer. And there, there's really, you know, we have, you know, levels of management within our organization, but there's no real hierarchy. You know, anybody that works within our organization can pick up the phone and call Bob directly and say, hey, here's what I hear, here's what I heard today, here's what I heard last week. You know, this might be something that we need to think about. And so he's he keeps his eyes and his, his ears and mind open to everyone that's out there that actually has their hands on this stuff and, and says, okay, maybe we need to pivot, or maybe there's another way that we need to look at that, that what we're hearing from the feedback. Um, and then one of the other things that he'll always do when we have company meetings or company gatherings or anything like that is he will start it off with what are the ways that we will fail? And he'll go through his list of his purview of here's how we fail. And then he, we go through and we discuss how to avoid those pitfalls and, and what's in our control and what's not in our control and set up a lot of strategy in that regard. So Abby, you, in your uh, bio, the really uh, thing that stuck out to me was the clinical outcomes team within uh, Curin. And it seemed to me that it was almost like mirroring what value analysis teams and things do in provider organizations. But uh, tell me your definition of clinical outcomes teams and how does that work in an organization like yours that other companies may not even have thought about or, or think about and how do they work? Yeah, it's a great question, Barbara, and I appreciate you asking that one. Um, you know, you have, I think it's very well known and very well important to anybody that's in the medical device industry that whatever their product portfolio is, they have clinical experts that are also on staff to help support the, the sales field. Um, so we basically approach this with our clinicians that we have hired come in tandem with our sales reps. 
But when we're talking with our customers, we say you, you don't have a sales rep without a clinical director and you don't have a clinical director without a sales rep. And they truly work as a team. But one thing that I think that we do a little bit differently is we keep an eye out for and really try to make sure that our clinical specialists have the ability or our clinical directors have the ability to function as more of a clinical sales function as well. Because, you know, we're going 100 miles per hour. Um, sometimes the, the rep and the, the clinical director have to go in two different directions and they need to be prepared to have those conversations um, sometimes on the business side as well. So we try to get them a little bit up to speed to be able to speak to that clinical process um, and, and drive that part, which is what makes us ultimately successful on the sustainable outcomes. But then they're also, also able to talk to, hey, as we drive compliance higher within your organization, you're seeing better outcomes and your ROI is only getting better as you do that. So they they work really in tandem with that, but it's a true partnership in that um, it's it's an ongoing strategy between the clinical director and the rep versus just being kind of pigeonholed into, hey, you only handle education and that's it. Mm -hmm. And that's a great approach because I find that there's too many silos in a variety of companies. And if they only sort of brought them together, they'd make better strides towards what's really important important things. That's a great concept. Thanks for the answer. Sure. Yeah. And in a 63 person team to have such emphasis on that clinical outcomes, I think also places you unique because most of the time when we're talking to organizations of similar size or smaller or roughly, they're still so top heavy with just salespeople. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that you are tying that in, I think that makes it very unique. Um, I want to talk about a little bit for a second um, in, in the in, in kind of describing how we arrived here. We talked about the data that your organization presented and how you made it specific. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, obviously not sharing trade secrets, but how do you mine your data? How do you present it in a way that is this is you, this is not everybody? Bob, you want me to take that one? Well, the only thing I could talk about is Hartford. Um, so do you want it? Um, sure. So it's interesting uh, because Hartford is, is really great because it was our first true you know, clinical success story in which we saw that Karen was effective. And we talk about that one a lot only because it was we got it in there, but Hartford had done an amazing job already with getting their blood culture contamination rates under control. They had put all elements of best practice in place. And Kieran was the only change variable during that time uh, when they, they studied the device and saw their 74% decrease and well under 1% of the contamination rate while, when, uh, while utilizing Kieran. Um, but one of the things that we found out very quickly, and I, I probably came up with this term um, years ago, back when my nieces were real big into the movie, movie Frozen, but hospitals in, in and of themselves are all special snowflakes. And I mean that by they're all very wonderful, but they're all very unique. They look the same from the outward, outside in, but when you get into the details, they are very unique, just like a snowflake is. And so no data, data isn't always the same in that regard as well. And blood culture contamination is one of those that uh, there was a lot of variables within the data. So the way we mine that is we spend a lot of time understanding on the upfront, hey, what does your blood culture contamination rates look like? How are you truly defining that? How often are you able to get your hands on that data? And we really dive into those details 
and get partnered up with them on making sure that we're set at the right baseline and then achieving towards the common goal of the right benchmark and then be able to turn that back over to them. So it is them giving, just like the Dr. Perkins said on his um, on a few episodes ago, they give us the data, no patient information or anything like that, just strictly on their, on their blood culture um, data. And then we take a look at really the impact that we've had, turn that around and then be able to say, hey, here's not only where you are from an outcome standpoint, but here's your ROI and the, the dollars that you've been able to save since implementing our process. So it's more of an educational process than a sales transaction. Um, I, I would combine those two. Yeah. So, I mean, because if you're not going to continue to, to uh, prove your ROI within these customers, um, especially in the environment that we're in today, we thought it was tough pre-2020. It's even more tough now coming out of all of that. I think that's the common theme in, in, in a lot of things that we're hearing now. Um, if we're not able to continually prove the ROI, they may be like, look, we love you guys. You're great. You're a great partnership. Our, our staff loves you. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they have to keep the doors open, just like Bob said as well. So we got to keep that ROI going. So it, it is a sales transaction combined with education of really what we've been able to provide. Abby, yeah, I, Hartford is a great example because they did have a lot of, you know, really actionable data that we can make these extrapolations on. And I, I did review the study that they put together about, you know, the $750,000 of, of annual savings, which is amazing. Those are, those are insights that a hospital is like, okay, I, that's something I can get behind, even if that is a process change. But we recently did a voice of the customer experience where we were talking to clinicians like Dr. Lewis Perkins. And one of the concerns that we heard frequently is that not all of their data did they really feel was a true reflection of what was happening bedside or in the labs. And that's number of needle sticks or attempts or things of that nature. How do you guys combat those kind of situations where you're not really sure how much their data reflects the current state? I mean, I think a lot of that comes down to compliance and again, what's actually happening within that individual facility. So one of the things that I think we do really well as an organization is we've, we've come up with a really nice recipe, but it's a general recipe. Um, and we basically figure out what's working best within that facility to be able to kind of make that hardwired in. And that is very true with how we turn that data back around on them as well. So it's, you know, you might have one facility that they saw a bump up in their rates and we go to find out that maybe they accidentally ran out of stock or something. And we're like, well, there we go. There was that. Or it could be that they had a whole new influx of travelers that came through that just didn't receive the education. So mm -hmm. when you have some of those, I guess what you're alluding to maybe potential discrepancies when we're turning it back around and they're trying to say, really, what was this? Yep. We do stay partnered with them so much that we are, we were almost understanding or right there hand in hand of, Hey, this, anticipate we might have a bad week coming up because here's the things that we just observed um, or a bad month coming up because here's what we've observed in the last time that we were in here. I love that going from a single transaction of information to that ongoing partnership approach. You know, we hear a lot of times that it's like the one and done. I get in, I try to make my sale and then I'm back out the door where you guys see much more relationship driven. Um, Bob, is that something that you guys have been implementing through your history of companies or how did you guys get to that type of approach? Um, I think it got developed really at the last company, Ivera. Uh, we, we began to understand that I guess I view the world as there are two basic types of products. There's me too products 
yeah, they can be have some different features and benefits, but they're basically doing the same thing as a bunch of other people. And you usually have to be cheaper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or there are these new revolutionary pioneering kind of devices that, you know, really need to take, there's a lot of, it's a different sales process altogether. And so we've adopted the partnership uh, model only because, um, A, I think it gives us, puts us in better alignment with these customers. Um it's something new. It's not a product you can just throw over the fence and say, see ya. Um, you know, you got it. It's all, it's not a silver bullet. You re- and we really need to work with people because everything that we do, yes, it's a product, but the product monetizes our activities, it monetizes our consulting services. It's the way we build our business. So by partnership, we can, um, gain success or with with the customer say look until we can solve this problem we're never going to get to where you want to be and then it's up to them do they want to solve the problem or not right so one of the things that's occurring right now in in a lot of companies but in healthcare is there's so many different types of disruptions either raw materials things like that how do you sort of uh review what's going on in the market today, either with your products, raw materials, or shifts in the market, uh, competitors that might be coming up? How do you sort of uh, monitor the market? Well, I wish I had a great answer for you. Uh, <laughs> honestly, honestly, I don't do a lot of that. I do um, have ears to the ground uh, with my field sales organization, the clinical people. We definitely listen to what they have to say. Our devices, um, there's some innovation in there, but they're not, I mean, Skinder, you saw the disinfection cap thing. I mean, it's it's not rocket science, right? <laughs> so there are some material components there. And, and so we're always looking for ways to make improve things, um, usually in the molding process to get more reliable production. Um, you know, if there's some material that will dramatically reduce our cost, that's great. Um, there's also availability, you know, things of those nature, especially today with all the supply chain issues. So we're, we're big on trying to have multiple um, suppliers of various things uh, just so we don't get trapped. I, 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 one of the things I, I, I want to give you guys as much credit for as possible is it's not always just the product is listening to the customers and trying to make things easier for them. And I remember I thought one of the most, greatest innovations that you did, it probably gets lost in the dynamics of everything, but it was going back to Ivera and Kuros. And one of the challenges was having those caps readily available. And if I recall, and you can expound upon this, but you actually made something that hangs from the pole uh, that allows them to just take those strips off. Tell me, that's such a little tweak that probably gets lost in the history of everything, but how does something like that come about? What is the impact of that? So we we uh, at Ivera, we had an employee by the name of Christine Army. And Christine and I have known each other since maybe 87. Um, was it 97? Anyway, um, she's now with 3M. And Christine was my first West Coast salesperson. And she ended up being the one that help set up the first clinical, we call it clinical integration team at that time. And 
Christine and I, people would watch our our dynamic, our relationship, and they'd say, "Were you ever married?" Because you, you you guys talk to each other like you're divorcees. <laughs> and we would bang heads all the time. And she came to me one day and said, "We got to have a multi pack, a carrier." And one of our competitors came out with a baggie that you could hang on a pole and you reach in and you pull out parts. And I was very resistant. I, I said, well, who's going to, I had another guy come in with a Rolo, you know, those candies uh-huh. and Rolo packs, you know, and <laughs> I said, who's paying for this? Is the customer paying for this or am I paying for this? <laughs> who knew this? So I had a machine that was making these parts. And one day I said, okay, uncle, I, I'll have a meeting. Uh, Christine, unfortunately, wasn't there with a few other guys, and we'll work through this. And I got a bunch of ideas. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, how can I do this with what I have as inexpensively as possible and fulfill the mission? And the mission was readily accessible product, right? And I realized I was had foil that were the lids of all these caps. And I was punching out each individual one that I could just cut a strip and punch holes. And so we built a few of those and Christine, she saw it. I thought this is perfect. This is cheap. You know, this is beautiful. I love this. And Christine sees it and says, this is it. And at the time we only had one hole on one end. She said, you need to put a hole in the other end. Cause you know, who knows what they're going to do. And, and, yeah, I think the, that might have been the best innovation of that company. Yeah, we needed to have the cap to support that, but it's almost like selling beers, right? Do you sell single beers? Sure, we do, but it's like selling those six packs or 12 packs, <laughs> right? I well, the, the, the great vision about that is there weren't so many that the customer felt like they were just going to throw something away at some point. They were just like the right size, sort of like Goldilocks and the three bears and the chairs and things. So those innovative ideas are what healthcare workers are really looking for. But to your point, there is a cost to conversion and it's not just the cost of products you're not going to use anymore and things, but it's all that time training people, getting them used to a new culture, new workflow. So you hit the nail on the head. So working with clients, those are some of the aspects that they're, they're just not getting sometimes because they're not spending that quality time, as you know, that's important with customers you know it's the voice of the customer whether it's firsthand going in and talking to them definitely frozen to get barbara barbara oh boy Whatever it was, it was going to be very insightful and profound. I, I promise yeah. you that. <laughs> and whatever I say next probably will be the opposite of that. But <laughs> uh, uh, we, we're going to get to a point where we want to start winding down um, out of respect for both of you and the time you've afforded us. I guess one of the last questions I have, uh, and, and I'll give Colleen an opportunity to ask another question after this, but the last question I have is, Bar- Bob, you've talked about this journey from one startup to eight startup and number eight can't wait to see what that looks like and, and how that evolves. But right now from one to seven, can you tell us just, and, and I'm guessing that dates back to the early nineties, if not late eighties, 
what is the most different thing that has occurred in that time frame from when you launched number one to now where you are with number seven? What's been the biggest difference that you can put your finger upon? I, I think for me, it's been the shift from the way we used to sell products under, there was cost plus in the 80s. Then we went to DRGs. And now with CMS becoming more militant with their quality metrics, I really focus on those things um, because that's where hospitals, if their quality doesn't reach a certain level relative to their peers, they can lose millions of dollars in, in Medicare reimbursement each year. And that is a powerful driver. So I think... Um, Am I back here? You are back, Barbara. Keep going, Bob. Uh, and and um, uh, so we we always talk about the environment that we live in. You know, who's paying? What the follow the money? Yeah, everyone knows that one, right? And what CMS has done, I and I don't I don't normally agree with a lot the government does. But I agree with that. Uh, when when I was doing the Ivera thing until 2011, I couldn't give away those caps. Yes, I, I reduced bloodstream infections. I proved it in a number of places. Um, but I had a doctor who was actually honest with me. He said, Bob, I like you, um, but I don't think you understand. Um, we make money from causing these infections. And I, I remember walking away thinking, okay, this is so perverted. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe I don't have a business, right? And then things changed. Almost literally, it felt like overnight. The thing of it is, is that um, you're not really making money with CMS taking money away from you. And if you're not improving Clabsies, et cetera, et cetera, you're not earning that money back. And then you're getting these poor leapfrog and AHRQ and different sort of uh, scores that affect your marketing for your hospital and a variety of things. So we're throwing money away in the U.S. healthcare system and not improving it as much. So we need thinkers like you that's really taking those value points and really knowing, putting your feet in the shoes that the customers are wearing. Because like you said, they're all snowflakes or I call them unicorns. Mm -hmm. um, And they're all going to be a little bit different. But the conversation I got left off with was about... um, the cost of conversions and really understanding that the minute the nurses or techs and or uh, the phlebotomists that draw blood cultures, for example, or, and you tell them that we want you now to change everything you ever knew about how to do a certain practice. It's like their hair's on fire. And um, we have to really talk about the true value of it not the dollars and cents, because that's what they think supply chain or someone else is trying to do is you just want me to use a cheaper thing because it's going to save us money because we're not doing well. And we're always just uh, voicing the, the value. So I only met Bob a few minutes before we started the podcast and we both locked eyes on value right away. So it was very refreshing to hear that from 
a CEO and then uh, Abby, the way that you've sort of uh, structured those clinical outcome teams and things. It's just very refreshing. And I hope our audience is really listening to how can I replicate that and, and it proves out in the end. Yeah. yeah. You know, I say this to the organization a lot of the time. First of all, I am very healthcare worker centric. I, you know, the, the needle free valves we were talking about was all about needle stick safety, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if what I tell people is if we can't provide value to our customers, I mean, real meaningful value, then we don't deserve to be in this business. And, um, that, that permeates everything that we do. We have to provide value. Oh, I love it. So we're going to wrap up here with uh, just some final thoughts, Mary. Barbara, um, I, I'm going to take it. Those were your final thoughts, essentially. Yeah, they really are. Okay, perfect. Um, and Abby and Bob, I'll give you a chance to lay your final thoughts on this. Uh, so we'll close up with you. But Colleen, any final thoughts from this discussion? I would say that just coming from a clinical background myself, um, from that provider side, it's really lovely to hear you guys and talk about the emphasis that we're really placing about what their process is, how to make things effective without doing a whole disruption. You know, there, there are a lot of times that we do talk about, you know, oh, we want to be a disruptor. We want to change everything, but change doesn't happen overnight. And especially with the way that things are, the number of travelers, the way that, you know, healthcare economics have been for the last few years. I just really like that approach of, you know, we have to make it easy for them to be able to incorporate. So really appreciate hearing your guys' insights on that. Yeah, love it. Um, my final thought and the thing that I love, and I, I hope every medtech entrepreneur that's listening to this really listen closely, is the thought of starting small and expanding out and beginning with the end in mind. And what I mean by starting small and ending out is you referenced how you've grown systematically to where you are in this organization as well as prior organizations. And I feel like too many too many entrepreneurs have their mindset on, I need to go and raise $20 million to start today so I can hire 100 people in the field, hire 100 engineers, and then they inevitably they get themselves into some sort of, sort of time crunch without even beginning with that end in mind. What is it that's going to move the needle? And it's reassuring and to see that you've had success at doing this and you've got a formula of let's not take on too big of a bite. Let's see if this fails before it even succeeds. I think is the right formula and that's why you've had success. So thank you for sharing that, Bob. We really appreciate that. Um, Abby, I'm going to give you a chance to do the final thought and then Bob will give you the chance to wrap it up. Yeah. I mean, I think you guys have, have pretty summarized it very well. Again, as I said before, I've been very fortunate to get to work with Bob all these years and, and learn from what I, and watch and, and see what his process is. And I, I'll, I'll leave you with this. And of course, we're going to put Bob on the spot afterwards, and which is his favorite thing ever. But um, is one of the other things is he checks the ego at the door. Um, he might not always agree, like he said, and, and sometimes he'll be a little bit stubborn about what we're taking to him. Um, the, the strip story is probably one of the best ones out there. And uh, if you didn't catch that theme when he was leading up to it from Kuro's days, but he checks the ego at the door. And it's, it's basically, hey, I'll be willing and ready to admit when I'm wrong or when we need to make a change. But the faster we figure out where those things are going to be, the better we're going to be better off as long-term company. 
um, and being able to continue to provide that value that is so important to being successful. Awesome, Abby. And you've been a core piece of that success now on two of those journeys. So hopefully you pat yourself on the back for all your success as well. I just call it a lot of luck and you got to show up to be lucky. So that's, <laughs> that's where we're at. But yeah. And, and Bob, we'll uh, we'll let you get the, fi- the final word in. Um, well, I'm not sure what to say here. You know, Abby made the comment about being humble. And, you know, I, I come from a family we didn't have a lot. Um, and I was fortunate I got a scholarship to go to school. I don't have any advanced degrees. I don't even have a degree in engineering. I did go to engineering school, but business econ. And I feel blessed. I, I actually, if you looked at my resume from maybe 20 years ago, you'd say, this guy can't keep hold a job. He, every two years, he's changing jobs. And I think it was, I was reflecting on that, that that was really indicative that I wasn't doing what I really wanted to do. And I'm blessed that I'm getting to do what I want to do now. Um, and that's to help solve these problems. And I think as long as my orientation is there, not on making money, not on you know my my shareholder, but on helping healthcare providers do what they need to do more effectively, more efficiently, reduce costs, and that's a great thing, and that's what that's what keeps me going. I love it when your north star is centered on the right ethics. Everything else is easy. So, Bob, Abby, thanks for giving us the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for sharing everything. Hope everybody in the audience has learned something because there's a lot of great morsels of knowledge to take from this. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our guests today from Curran, Bob Rogers and Abby Norfleet. At the end of the day, everyone wants to deliver great health care, but they need to keep the doors open as well. Change is hard in hospitals, and change in workflow, almost impossible. So as you're bringing your solutions in, make sure that they're easily able to integrate. That's going to be a key to success. Work with the idea of failure so you're not investing time into non-viable options. You need to be able to provide value to your customers to find true success. And if you've not already done so, be sure to follow and subscribe at the MedTech Business Academy on your preferred platform. Thank you.